Father, as we have sung this morning, and as we have talked about and already prayed, be here with us. Show us your glory. May your presence be with us. And may the Holy Spirit teach us this morning, not me, for for my words will fall short of your glory, but may the Holy Spirit do his work. And may we rest in you, love you, and find you as our greatest joy and the love of our life. We love you, dear Father, in your precious name. Amen. All right. Um, this week, then, first, well, actually, I was going to say this too. I wanted to thank you again. I've, I've said already thank you, well, you know, already this week, but I know that Ricky was already actually. I think he was really stoked for this sermon too, because um, this is this is a great passage. And the more and, and we say this, you should go you should go study this on your own and let the Holy Spirit speak and teach you. Um, some of the reasons why we we speak so long, we both like to have long sermons, is because there's just so much to say, and we love the things of the Spirit. We love the things of God, and we want to just keep saying them to you. All right, and so I will try not to go as long, but I told Alyssa this morning, I'm like, it's all so good, but I am going to go long, I think. It's, it's just long. <laughs> so I'll try not to, and if I need to skip over stuff, Holy, Holy Spirit, please tell me to do so. Um, but we're going to start with what's called the High Priestly Prayer. It is Jesus' prayer for his disciples and for us before he goes to his execution. Let's open to John 17 and read through it. Actually, you know what? To save some time, I, was, um, this is, I tell Ricky this is part of my plan to maybe consolidate what I was going to do. I'm gonna, normally, I want to start with the Scripture because that is central to us, what God says. We're going to read through it, but let me tell you first, maybe before we read through it, that we're Instead of studying this, this passage word by word, which we could do, or verse by verse, which we probably could do, we're going to do a little bit more of a flyover and get boiled down to the essence of, the, of, of what Jesus is praying here. And I want, to, I, want to, I want to go over those three things I think that Jesus is really praying about first so that we can read through it once and not have to read through it twice, which was my original plan. <laughs> okay? But those three things then... I want to point you to. And there are three things, but they're kind of intertwined. Okay, They always come back and forth. Um, and we're going to read that when, when we read through this. The three things then, and if, this is great for a three-point sermon that it always comes this way, but if you want to take notes, the three things then are, one, God's glory. He prays for God's glory. More specifically, that God may receive the glory due to Him and that the glory of God may be made known. Point two, then, he, he's praying for the save, or the saving, or that he might be made known, the saving and the sanctification of the saints. Okay? That they may be more like Jesus, more like himself. And then, third, he prays for the union of the believers, that they might be one, us, the church, our unity. And for us to be in union, our unity with the Father and with Jesus himself. God's glory, saving and sanctifying of the believers so that we might be in union with each other and God. Those three things. So let's read through it. Follow along with me. I'm reading from the ESV. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that, they, that you take them out of the world, but you, that you keep them from the whole evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through your word, for, through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as you loved, loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Long passage. But as if, you were, if you were thinking about those three things, the glory of God, the saving and sanctifying of the saints, and the unity of the church and to, of us and to God, you see how he keeps winding those things throughout the passage, right? This is what he wants from us. This is the picture of the gospel, is it not? 
I would say that if we look even closely, these three things are even in the first five verses of the passage. Let me read that real quick to you. In fact, I don't even have to read five past, or five verses. They're right in the beginning. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see? Jesus prays for the glory of God, both that he might glorify God and that God may glorify Jesus. Then he prays that the saving of man might be accomplished so that mankind can be with God, union and fellowship, to know him for all time. And, of course, he ends that with, to the glory of God. Okay, we finish out that, that, that paragraph. I want to um, actually move forward. So the first thing we're going to focus on then is the glory of God. Right? So point one, we said the glory of God, right? Here's the glue that holds it all together. Jesus begins the prayer this way and continues to pray about it throughout. If you want to, I'm going to, I'm going to say these things again. You can, you can find them in the passage. He says, Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then he says it in a little bit different way. He says, I have manifested your name. And then he says it again. I have given them the words you gave me. That's revealing him. And then he says it again. I have made known to them your name and will continue to make it known. That's revealing God. Okay? Making him known. Glorifying him. Yes? The glory of God. This actually could be a, a sermon in itself, really. Um, in fact, it could be an entire study. And as a church, we've, we've actually gone through a study that covered it for at least two weeks in that study. And I say it should actually be the, the study of our lives. Because that's what we're going to do, is glorify God. Okay? What is the glory of God then? Well, kind of a working definition for this morning. To magnify the greatness of. That's glory. To make known the greatness, the beauty and perfection of. The glory of God. Stepping away just a little bit, and you can answer me now. What do you think of when you think of the glory of God? I know, I just kind of won't take too long. But what do you think when I say the glory of God? What do you think of? It could be a lot of things, because the glory of God is a lot of things. Majesty. Say it. My one responsibility. Okay. I was thinking even more along the lines of, you know, when, okay, so this is me. When I think of the glory of God, I think like majestic mountains, beautiful sunrises, right? Kindness towards one another. And these are aspects of the glory of God, too, right? The Bible actually defines or, 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 or reveals the glory of God in several ways, okay? And in fact, if you want to turn with me, I'm going to, I wanted to make this, uh, this, this sermon heavy with with scripture, but that also takes a little bit of time. We're gonna let's let's turn in our Bibles for a little bit. Um, in fact, I didn't find these myself. What I was gonna say to you is, if you search the internet for the glory of God in Scripture, you're gonna come up with a ton of Scripture because that's what it's all about, right? But let's first go. We're gonna go all the way back to Exodus, Exodus 24, 15 through 17. If I beat you there, I'm just gonna start reading. 
Exodus 24, 15 through 17. Just little snippets. It says, When Moses went up to the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses within the cloud. And to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Next one, Psalm 19. A little bit of Bible Olympics here. Psalm 19, verse 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. God speaks through His creation. Psalm 97, verses 1-6. through I was faster with this this morning. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him and consumes His foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim His righteousness, and all the peoples see His glory. Okay, and just one or two more. We're going to go way back to Revelation 21. Last book. 21, 23 through 25, in describing the heavens and the city of God. It says, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever shut, for there will be no night there. And earlier in the chapter, in 11, it says, speaking of the holy city of God, it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And you notice... The glory of God, when I ask you about it, you're just like, ah, oh, I guess I haven't thought. It's because the glory of God is, is, is hard to pin down into one thing. It's because, and the Bible even has to use poetic language at times to try to explain this thing that is so great and precious. Yes? Um, the Westminster, this is our, this is our mission in life then. The Westminster Catechism says, what does it say? A lot of you know this, right? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What does Jesus say in the first five five, uh, uh, verses? He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ brings a little bit more to it, right? This is what we're made for, the glory of God. And you know what? I admit, as a child, even as a teenager, I thought, this is it. When I read that, to know God, I already know Him. So am I experiencing eternal life right now? 
um, what about all the other stuff? You know, like the, the streets of gold and the mansions and all that. And uh, that was very, well, I can, I can see that. I can see now why I might say that. But as God reveals himself to you, you start to think how foolish I, I was. Yes? And I'm probably going to think that even, even further on from today, how foolish I am. For the glory of God is so precious. How I wish I would have been taught more about this. You see, he is the prize. He is of such great value that knowing him and getting to know him more and more is heaven. It is paradise. His greatness is such that words, like I said, need to be poetic for even the human imaginations to begin to to fathom him. He is, as in Matthew 13, the pearl of great price. Do you remember that parable? The pearl of great price. The treasure in the field that the man finds and goes and sells everything for so that he might have this one thing. Nothing is more valuable, more precious, more joyous, more fulfilling than God himself. Don't you know that your saving and knowing God now is just the tip of the everlasting iceberg? That getting to know the infinite being, the self-existing one, will never stop. It will take eternity to know him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. This is why we always pray here at Cross Life, and we did this morning, that God may be with us. That his presence may be here. And I pray that God reveals himself to us, even though my words right now are insufficient for describing the glory of God. May he reveal himself to you, so that you desire him. When we see him, When he reveals his presence to us more and more, nothing else matters except embracing him and never letting go. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. The glory of God. Point two then. Saving and sanctifying those he has called. If we go back to John 17, notice how many times he mentions the believers. In fact, this prayer is for the church. It's for us. It's for his disciples, the believers, the followers of God. He says it. I'm going to just go right on through it. If you, if you, you can probably see it as I go. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him, the believers. To the people whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me. They have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them, says Jesus. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, the believers. He says, I do not ask for these only, I love this, but also for those who will believe in me through your words. He's speaking through the disciples. He's speaking about us, church, right there. He's praying for us. What does he pray for? That God might sanctify us in the truth. 
His word is truth. We're going to come back to that. But before we do, he also says, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, here we pause just a little bit. Sometimes when I run into some of these words, I think, okay, if I can just get to the definition of this word, I can, I can, I can understand this better, right? Consecrate. Sanctify. We don't use those in normal speech. We use that here in the church. And sometimes we just kind of grow up and, and we know that those are words that we hear, but we don't actually like really get to the bottom of them, right? What does Jesus mean? For their sake, I consecrate myself. What does consecrate mean? Well, I, I even I needed to look it up myself just to get to the bottom of it. It says, uh, 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 the definition was to dedicate oneself, to devote oneself to a divine purpose. What was Jesus devoting himself to? Saving us. So right here in these little words, I consecrate myself. He's saving us. Right here's the gospel. And it says in other parts of the New Testament that All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. And then he says, Paul says in Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy, according to the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ, even when we are dead in our sins. And then again in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, God made him, Jesus, consecrated himself to be sin." Who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange. God is saving his people. But let's back up just a little bit more. It's always good to remember what he's saving us from. Okay? Remember in Ephesians 2, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, I just said. I know you've heard this before, at least here at Cross Life. We go over it all the time. Let me describe it to you maybe just a little bit differently. Um, I've been reading, actually I've read, and then I've been kind of coming back to it, uh, Lewis, C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain. I finished it a couple weeks ago, but it's been speaking to me, and I started another book, and it's been, the Holy Spirit's been speaking me, uh, uh, through it uh, to me as well. In it, he describes to his audience... Uh, C.S. Lewis, primarily non-Christians, but Christians too, the problem with humanity as being a separation from the unit of the union of God. Okay, first he draws the the picture of of of, of the union of God. He he says that God fashioned man and gives him this special attention and love to this creature, man, and man is filled with and connected perfectly to the Creator. Nothing at first gets in the way of his full love, obedience, and self-giving to his creator. And God, in turn, loves and gives himself to mankind. It's mutual self-giving. Man, then, is in paradise, truly. He knows God. Perfectly connected to God and his glory. Perfect bliss because he knows and participates in a perfect, blissful love. Lewis describes this man, Adam, right, as having, as also having the benefits of being in the Father, as Jesus prays, being in the Father, filled and sustained by his Spirit. Um, he says, because of his union with God, Lewis says, his spiritual law even lives above the laws of nature. Okay, he even imagines that Adam has total control over his desires, his hunger, his growth, because he's connected to God. 
He is how he is made to be, a representative creature of God's handiwork. Like God himself, he lives to die. What do I mean by that? Put it another way, he lives to give away. He lives to love, to truly love. Nothing in man sought his own goodness at this time. The love is, uh, to love is to continually give oneself up. And when he was doing that with God, he was in total paradise. He, he gave up and God gave to him and heaven it was. But then at some point, man, Adam, sought his own good. He turned inward and stopped giving away. He kept for himself. This is an archetype of us today, right? We do this. And this keeping, this self-seeking broke that perfect union. The source of life to which man directed his attention and from which he, being a derived creature, drew his power, who is no longer the greatest, his source of greatest affection, man sought himself. Man sought his individual good. He broke the union with God. When seeking his own good and not the good of the Creator God, man's sins, and here is separated from God. He's separated from the good, capital G, good, the capital L, life, the capital T, truth. He's separated really from ultimate reality, and he lives a lie that he himself is the chief end of life. This is the pattern of the world today. Sin, self-centeredness, it reigns in mankind, and out of it all sorts of evil result. And even the good things that happen, even the good things we do, we do them to earn, to work, to say we're good, to say we have a reason to exist. And this good is even self-serving. So even the good we do is no good. And being thus consumed with ourselves, dead in our trespasses and sins, though we cannot seek God, we have no hope of restoring the union we had. For in the end, we cannot love God for God. We will love Him for what He can do for us. And that's not love. Love is always self-giving. If we serve Him for what He can do for us, that's self-serving self-seeking. We will always be doing that without God. Without Him, we were lost without hope. You see, as we've said before, we may not be as bad as we can be, but we are definitely bad, as bad off as we can be. <laughs> but God. Ephesians 2. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us made us alive in Christ. The beautiful mystery that somehow God became a man in Jesus, lived the perfect life of union with the Father, for His becoming a man did not, did not uh, sever that union with God in eternity past. He obeyed the Father fully so that He deserved the perfect union with God. But the only one who obeyed perfectly and was separated from God. Why? For us. Right? The greatest tragedy turns out to be the greatest blessing for us. The great mystery. He's able to substitute, substitute our separation 
take that on himself and give us the union he deserved for us. To us, the great exchange to show God's approval of that payment, our justification, God raises Jesus from the dead, and then he ascends to the throne on high. This is how he brought us back. This is how we are made alive. Our separation is no longer. We can have fellowship with God. Union with him. Be one with each other and one with God, just as he is one. And here is the capital T truth, the reality, life as it is. To be one with God, to glorify Him and know Him forever, that is life. So Jesus prays then, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So here's another little idea for contemplation, your word. He says this a number of times, in fact. let's, Let's focus on this. He says, they have kept your word. For I have given them the words that you gave to me. At the beginning of John, John says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later on, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So kind of fast forward to that and kind of simplify it so that we don't spend too much time on it. Let's just say that the Word then that he gives us is God himself. Truth is God revealing himself to us. We've said this with the glory of God already. And when God is the source of life and truth, that which is reality itself, then Jesus is praying that we might be made pure, be sanctified, be made worthy of God in the image of Christ by knowing the truth. God's word. What he says and reveals about himself. This is how we're made pure, by knowing God and having union with Him. One little bit more on this, on grace and sanctification. I teach this with my boys. Um, What does grace mean, right? Unmerited favor. So while grace, this unmerited favor God grants towards us through Jesus' payments for our sin, remember our self-seeking, our separation from God, sanctification... Big words. It's how God works all things to make us like Christ. Okay? And here's the part I want to focus on. If we're being made more like Christ, and in death being made fully like Him when we die, what are we ultimately seeking to be? To be back in perfect union with God. And that only happens when we have a perfect love for God. To always be giving away of ourselves. A perfect self-giving, right? So the other book I'm reading is uh, The Cost of Discipleship. And forgive me if I'm saying his last name wrong. You can help me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Heffer? Hoffer? Okay, Bonhoeffer. He refers to himself, or sorry, he refers to this self-giving as dying. Okay? He says to be dying to yourself always. He says... He's quoted as saying, when Christ calls a man, when he calls a person, he bids him come and die. Reflect on this. To pursue Christ. To become like Christ. To be sanctified, our big word. You must die to yourself. 
You must die to the life you think you deserve. The life that is about you. The life that separates you from the union of God, from the glory of God, from life and truth. This is the essence of discipleship. Christ has died for you. He took your death and separation so that you can be with God. So what do you do? Your following of Him, then, is the very same. You must die so that you might live. And that we do daily. It has been said, if, you're, if you work for your salvation, if you earn it, God owes you on your terms. But if salvation is a gift, if it's grace, unmerited, then you owe God. You owe Him your life. It's the only appropriate response. Bonhoeffer refers to this as costly grace. And I come back to that now and I reflect on it. It's costly, not only because it costs Christ everything, but it also costs you everything. It's grace because Christ accomplishes it for you. It's costly because it is your death to self, but grace because you have life, true life in Christ. God, remember, is the the pearl of great price. The treasure. He is the one so precious that to die to yourself, get this, you gain infinitely more. And this is through Christ alone. Costly grace. So, we've covered, we're going, going into point three, okay? We've covered what? The glory of God. That's what it's all about. Two, Christ came to save us back to the glory of God. And He's working through our lives to sanctify us, make us pure, and bring us back to the self-giving love, union with God. So the third one then we're going to talk about is the union of the, the, the believers, uh, the church to be with one another and to God. Okay? So Jesus prays for the union of believers that they might be one and for the union of the believers to God. You've probably already heard me say union over and over again, right? Okay? Um, by now, uh, I hope you're beginning to get the picture, actually. Uh, Christ is praying over and over again in this passage that his followers might be united together and united to God. He begins to expray, pray explicitly for it. So I haven't, I haven't gone back to it, but here it is again. Let's go to verse 11, if you're in your Bibles. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And in verse 21, he says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Because they're one. That they may also be in us. Later he says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And then in 24 he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, Jesus says. And finally, he says that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. To be one. Okay? Um, I also want to remind you that this happens within God himself. Right? What do I mean? The Trinity. Right? We talk about the Trinity... um, 
the three persons of God. Jesus keeps saying in his prayer that he and the Father are one. Right? And earlier he speaks of the Spirit proceeding from being in the Father and glorifying Jesus and declaring what he hears from God. So we have these three persons. Now, the Trinity is a mystery of the greatest proportions. And I, I don't say that lightly. But what I want to focus your attention on is that God is one being in three persons, unlike anything else. And he in himself is a self-giving community. One continually giving to the other. This is how love can even exist. If love, the sort of love defined by God, is dying to self or self-giving, then love can only be achieved between more than one. And in himself, he perfectly loves. This is the only the tip of the iceberg. But I want to start here since in God we find this rhythm of life. Okay? This rhythm of life. This union where perfect love self and self-giving exists. It's in Him. So going back to problem of pain. I'll probably be quoting from it a little bit now. So hang on a little bit. Lewis writes this. He says, uh, and I say this because he just writes so eloquently. And I think he says it really well. He says, For in self-giving, if anywhere... We touch on a rhythm, not only of all creation, but of all being. For the eternal word also gives himself in sacrifice. And get this, not just not, and that not only on Calvary. For when he was crucified, he did that which in the wild weather of his outlying provinces, he had done at home in glory and gladness from eternity past. As the Father glorifies the Son, so also the Son glorifies the Father. So church, this is what we were made for. And this is what you long for. Is it not? I want to give you a little, just a brief picture of of my life, personal thing. When I was in grad school, I mentioned this in a Bible study once, and I, I think, I think, just disconnect to other people, and I don't know. But I'm finally, it's finally starting to come around to me, maybe. I remember locking the door to my apartment once, going to class. Alyssa was already at work. And I think, it's like a whisper more, really. It was this whisper that said, I can't wait for her. And then nothing else. And I just stopped. I was like, wait a minute. What, what can't I... It's not the weekend. That's not going to fix it. It's not an easier life. So, I, But I just kept going on. And get this, it's actually happened again and again to me. <laughs> it still happens once in a while. I have this longing, this little whisper that I can't wait for. And then nothing. And I even see this sometimes, maybe you do, in, 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 for me it's in music, the beauty of music. If you don't know, you're new, I'm a musician, and I teach at the university music. And I specifically I think God speaks through music to me. And there's just these deep down longings I hear in beautiful music and I just I can't place my finger on it. I say that this is what is behind that desire. Okay? In fact, I think I think Lewis said it really well. Uh, he says uh, in his in his book, he says uh, um, 
says, uh, but at, at, at the first words, this thing that you're trying to describe to your friend, this longing, says, a gulf yawns between you and you realize that this landscape or this music or this whisper that you've, uh, that you've been trying to tell this means something totally different to you than it does to this person you've been describing this to. And he says that, this, that he is pursuing an alien vision and cares nothing for, this is the phrase, the ineffable suggestion by which you are transported. I looked up, what, is, what does he mean by ineffable suggestion? The thing that deeply moves or inspires you, that you long for in your innermost being but cannot describe or even hardly identify yourself. And I read that and I thought, I think the Spirit is whispering to me when he says, I can't wait for God. Can't wait for him. Lewis goes on and says, All the things that have ever deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of this. And if you should ever ever fully realize it, you would recognize that beyond all possibility of doubt, you would say, Here is at last the thing I was made for. We cannot tell each other about it. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want. And God creates these souls and makes each soul unique. If he had no use for all these differences, I do not see why he would have made created why he would have created more souls than one. Be sure that the ins and outs of your individuality are no mystery to him. And one day they'll no longer be a mystery to you. The mold in which a key is made would be a strange thing if you had never seen a key. And the key itself a strange thing if you had never seen a lock. Your soul has a curious shape because it is the hollow made to fit a particular swelling in the infinite contours of the divine substance. Beautiful words. For it is not humanity in the abstract that is being saved, but you. Bo, Alyssa, Sam, Chas, Ricky, Oxus. Blessed, fortunate creature, your eyes shall behold him and not another's. God will look to every soul like its first love because he is its first love. Your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it, God. And listen, church, this will only happen because you, personal you, will be continually giving yourself to him in true love. Lewis says again, the thing you long for, God, summons you away from yourself. So this is the ultimate law. The seed dies to live. He that loses his soul will save it. Speaking to the intricate knowing of each unique individual by God, Lewis writes this. He says, And what, and what shall we take this personal secret knowing to mean? Surely that each of the redeemed, us, shall forever know and praise some aspect of the divine beauty better than any other creature can. 
What else were individuals created? Why else but that God, loving all infinitely, should love all, each differently? And this difference, so far from impairing, floods with meaning the love of all blessed creatures for one another, the communion of the saints. If all experienced God in the same way and returned Him an identical worship, the song of the church triumphant would be no symphony. It would be like an orchestra in which all the instruments played the same note. Aristotle has told us that a, a city is a unity of unlikes. And St. Paul, that a body is a unity of members. Heaven is a city. Heaven is a body. Because the blessed remain eternally different. A society, because each has something to tell the others. Fresh and ever fresh news as my God, whom each finds in him, whom all praises our God. For doubtless, the continually successful, yet never complete, attempt by each soul to communicate its unique vision to all others is also among the ends for which the individual is created. Do you see this? Are you beginning to get a picture of what and why Jesus is praying for our unity here now as a church and forever with God in heaven? It is heaven. Finally, Lewis writes, and to its fellow creatures, each soul, we suppose, will be internally engaged in giving away to all the rest that, w- that which it receives. And as to God, we must remember that the soul is but a hollow which God fills. Its union with God is, almost by definition, a continual self-abandonment, an opening, an unveiling, a surrender of itself. So hear this church. This is what we're made for. This is paradise, heaven. The fulfillment Christ, Christ's joy, he actually, if you look in, 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 in verse 13, he asks that we might be fulfilled in him, that our joy may be complete. And he says this in other places in John too. Unity in the church. Union with God. To revel and bask in his glory. Starting now and going on for forever. And finally, to bring it back around to the first point, this unity for which Christ sacrificed himself in our place will bring glory to God, the glue that holds it together. If you read all the way back to John 14 to the present, you'll see Jesus say all we've talked about. It's enlightening, actually, if you read, go back to 14 and read all the way through after you've studied his prayer. What does he say in John 15, 7 and 8? He says, if you abide in me, union, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified. And then in his prayer, in, in his prayer that we've been studying, Jesus says in 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that you may be glorified, is what he's saying. In other words, that you may be glorified, God. And then in, in 23, he, he says, so that the world may know, God be glorified, that you sent me and love me even as, 
uh, and love them even as you loved me. God receives our glory and our unity. That's why he calls us to union with each other and with him. And finally, Jesus asks this, and I love it. He wants us to be with him. He says, to be where I am. So why? 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 To see my glory that you have given me. He wants you to participate with his divine glory. So to summarize it then, church, Jesus is praying here that through his death, we might be saved to be, to be made to self-give in the divine, supernatural love of Jesus, sanctification, so that we might be one with him and share in his glory, that we, church, might forever glorify him. See the love with which he has loved us. May we continue to be ever more like Christ by abandoning ourselves, dying to ourselves, and pursuing loving God through Christ. Let's pray. Father, um, you are the pearl of great price, the treasure that we long for, and maybe we don't even know it sometimes like, like I have. And, um, but you know, when you reveal yourself to us, when your Holy Spirit makes his presence known, nothing else matters. We fall at your feet. And we realize that the things that we've longed for most are now fulfilled because we know you. May, may your words speak to us. May Jesus, as, his, as he prays for us here, may that, may that speak to us. May we go and um, proclaim this gospel to others. The union of God, the thing that they long for, the thing that they're made for, is to be with you, to participate in the love of God. Father, change our hearts. May the, may the Spirit speak to us and uh, change our hearts so that you are our first love, the thing we pursue in life. We love you, Father. In precious name, amen.